Good morning, everybody. It's great to be back. Miss my church family when I'm gone. Uh, we do have some great elders, though, that can, can fill in, which I'm really thankful for. So, welcome. And if this is your first time here, we're especially grateful that you chose to worship with us this morning. We're glad you're here. So, I remember this instance in my life. It was a day that I'll never forget. I was filled with a sense of both fear and awe like I had never been filled with before. I was working at a power plant back when I was in college. And there's a lot of weird noises you hear when you're working in a power plant. Uh, a piece of metal will get caught in a grinder or something like that. But I heard a noise like I'd never heard before. And it was a tremendous boom followed by what sounded like a jet airplane flying about 10 feet over your head. Just this rushing noise. And I was trying to play it cool, and I take my cues from the old-timers that were there and the looks on their faces. So the first thing I did was look at the old-timers, and they did not look good. They looked a little freaked out. Their eyes were big. And then I looked at a set of double glass doors, and people are just sprinting like crazy. And I thought, well, this is bad. This is bad. So I go outside of the building. I walk through those double glass doors, and I'll never forget. I looked up, and there was about an 800-foot black plume shooting out of the roof of that power plant. And there were pieces of the roof flying down beside me, and I thought, Chad, you better run or you're going to die. And sure enough, what had happened was a steam pipe that went through the top of the plant that carried the steam down to the, the turbine. It was under tremendous pressure, and one day it just split. Uh, as a matter of fact, I went and took a look at the steam line, and uh, it was not a big rupture. It, it was a pretty small one. But there was enough power inside of that steam line that it blew the roof off the top of the plant. If anybody had been there, it was a miracle there was nobody injured. But it would have killed anybody who'd been standing up there. Now, I had walked past these steam lines dozens of times. I mean, I didn't think anything about it. I walked over top of them, over some grating. I'd seen them before. You know, we'd worked around them, and you never thought that much about it. And you would have had no idea how much power were inside those lines until one day one of them revealed itself. And you got to see just what all was contained within that line. And I think about my Savior, Jesus Christ, at times to be just as unassuming as one of those steam lines. He was sort of a nice cheerleader, a good example. He was a guide on the side, not necessarily a big man in his stature when he walked here on earth. No one looked at him and assumed him to be who he actually was. But there in him was an infinite power beyond our imagination. For our sake, he veiled his godness, but within him was the creation of the universe. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, but do we see him as our king? Do we understand him to be as powerful as 
he actually is. And what I want to talk about this morning is, how do I see Christ as king? How can I see Christ as my king in a culture that really doesn't even know what a king is? And the passage I want to look at this morning comes from John chapter 18. We'll be reading John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. I think the words will be coming up when they're ready to come up. Starting at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You may be seated. We continue this morning to go through a series called A Living Hope. We're winding up the book of John. We're entering into a new phase. It's called the Passion of the Christ, when he would give his life up for mankind. And often, if you were to go into cathedrals and things, the Apostle John is depicted as an eagle, because in the Gospel of John are such high and lofty thoughts about Jesus Christ, it was appropriate, they believed, to depict John as an eagle. And in the book of John, it tells us why the book of John was written. So let's read it again, starting with the reference in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, Many other signs, Jesus, all together now, okay, all together now. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This morning, as we go through this beginning of John chapter 18, look at these verses. There's a few things I want us to see. First of all, two consequences of rejecting the kingship of Christ. Two consequences, and then three ways we accept his kingship. So two consequences first, then these three ways we accept the kingship of Jesus Christ. And we start with number one, the rejection creates unholy alliances. First of all, the rejection creates unholy alliances. And so Jesus and his disciples, they've entered this garden. They called it a garden, and you can go there today. These would be different olive trees than the ones that Jesus sat under because the Romans came in and they hewed down all of the olive trees. But think of this more as like 
a grove. I'm curious, how many of you have been to the Garden of Gethsemane? Yeah, I know a few of you have been to Israel. You've seen uh, this place. And it was beautiful. They prayed there together. And Jesus, who had parted from the company of Jesus and his disciples, the text says he knew the place well. He'd been there before. He'd been there with Christ and the other disciples. And Judas, after having his feet washed by Jesus and spending all that time with him, is now going to make his betrayal of Jesus complete. Look again at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas shows up not only with Jewish leaders, the temple had its own set of soldiers and guards, but he showed up with these Roman soldiers as well. Remember, this was a very small part of a giant Roman empire. There was a Roman presence there, and this kind of uh, moment in the Jewish calendar made the Romans edgy. Remember, we're in the Passover season, and the Jews are all gathering now in Jerusalem, and that made for a tense situation. There had already been one revolt against the Romans by the Jews. It was called the Maccabean Revolt. It happened uh, before the time of the New Testament, between the two Testaments, and they were nervous, and no doubt Pilate had been informed by the Jewish leaders that this man This Messiah was making the claim that he was king of the Jews. Again, these people were already edgy and scared. And the last thing that Pilate needed was another kind of mob uprising among the people, rallying around someone who appeared to be some sort of a prophet or something. So they wanted to squash this as soon as they could. And John's portrait is clear. All of these people, the enemies of Jesus, showing up. This is the entire world coming against Christ. Responsibility for what happens is going to lie upon them. And Judas is now in league with them. And it was for 30 pieces of silver that Judas had chosen to betray Christ. I love how one commentator characterized Judas. <clears throat> he said, Judas was not an unusual monster, but a common man caught in a common sin of greed, which Satan used to accomplish his purpose. Now, Judas and the world have a common foe, and that can make for uncommon friendships. And people don't reject Jesus for nothing. Someone will assume the throne in their lives. Every time. Let me ask, who's on the throne of your life this morning? How are you making the decisions that you make? What's guiding you? Where do you seek your ultimate security? You know, I used to work for the military and Part of my job was to make sure that America continued to be the 800-pound gorilla on the block and maintained military superiority. That was part of my job. I was a civilian engineer working on defense aircraft. But you know what? There's one enemy that no military can ever protect you from. There's an enemy called sin and death. 
And the military may save me from a foreign invader, but it can't save me from sin and death. And only King Jesus can do that. And Judas rejected the deity of Christ, rejected his kingship, and he has to look for some other form of security. So I can make no alliance in this earth that will substitute my alliance with Christ and his church. So when we reject his kingship, we will make an alliance and align ourselves with the world and their systems, and their way of doing things. And we should be surprised when the world comes against us, when the unbelievers come against us, because they, just like all of us were at one time, are aligned with Satan. That's what God called us out of. That's what Jesus made possible, was a way out of those unholy alliances through his own blood. Rejecting Christ as our king means we will look for another means to save us, another kind of security. That brings us to the second point, that rejecting his kingship means self-salvation. It creates self-salvation. Now, Peter, seeing what's happening, is going to be compelled to step in. But before that, look at what happens. Because a squad of soldiers that is now gathered, that they know, uh, suspect who Jesus is. And they're closing in. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on, the text tells us. He knows who they're looking for. And John is stressing here, Jesus is still in control of the situation. He's the one asking the questions. Look at verse 5. He asked them, who are you looking for? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, notice what it says, Judas, who betrayed them, betrayed him, was standing with them. John is showing where the alliance lies. He is standing with them. And, and don't overlook this response. It's really the climax of this moment because Jesus identifies himself with those two key words. John uses it without, throughout his gospel, I am. And before in the Gospel of John, he said, I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the way. When Jesus says, I am he, what do the soldiers do? Look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. We don't know how many soldiers there were. That, that Greek word that's used to, to depict this number of soldiers can be uh, up to 600. It can be as few as 200. We don't know uh, how many were there, but it could have been a good number of them. And they fall to the ground. And this is a typical reaction when Christ is revealed in His glory to mankind. We see this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We go back and look at what the prophet Ezekiel said in chapter 128, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. He's describing his encounter with Christ. Again, the prophet Daniel 10, 9. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Paul talks about this kind of reaction, falling down in the book of Acts when he sees Jesus, when he comes in his resurrected form and confronts Saul, then to become Paul. And again, the apostle John in the book of Revelation 
chapter 117, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. What's happening in these verses? Same thing that's happening with these soldiers. Responding better than they even know to do in the presence of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that they've suddenly become faithful followers. Because they're going to get up and they're going to arrest him. But it reminds me of what Paul said in Philippians 2, 10, 11. As a matter of fact, we, we sang it this morning. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These soldiers have fallen down in the name of Christ. And now they stand back up. And look what it says in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Interesting, that name Malchus actually means my king. Now, is Peter brave? Yeah, I think he's one of the bravest of the disciples. But this act was as pointless as Peter was brave. Because Peter was taking matters into his own hands in an unnecessary way. And one commentator stated it this way, that Peter's bravery is not only useless, it is a denial of the work to which Jesus has just consecrated himself. But the disciples are not comprehending it. I mean, Peter just couldn't trust that Jesus was really in control. He's like, I don't like this. This isn't how this is supposed to be going down. Jesus, you're supposed to conquer the Romans. You're the king. You're in charge. Here, let me help just a little bit. Here, I got a, I got a dagger. And he was a fighter. I mean, he was a good fighter. His identity was fighting. And he knew how to take control of a situation. It didn't make sense that Jesus was going to be arrested. But see, this is what happens when someone rejects Christ's kingship. It's going to require a kind of self-salvation. You have to take matters into your own hands. Do you trust that Christ's kingdom will come at the precise moment he intends it to? Peter knew about God's new kingdom coming, but he still wants to take matters in his own hands. And when push comes to shove, what does he do? He reaches for the sword. And we're living in some bad times, i got to tell you. I was, uh, I watch church trends broadly, and the church has been in decline in America since the 60s. And I'm talking about the church broadly, those who have professed to be Christians and go to church. Since 2020, most churches have gone through about a 40% decline. They're at about 60% of where they were in 2019. We haven't felt a decline to that degree. We have felt it some. But there's a temptation that goes along with that. And this has also been around for a while. Well, how are we going to get people back? Well, maybe we need to make things a little more entertaining. Maybe we need to make it more of a concert. Maybe we need to make it more of a really fun, cool place to be. That'll get them back. That's what self-salvation looks like. 
When Jesus enters, isn't our king, we relegate him. Well, he's the guide on the side. He's the cheerleader. He's our good example. He's rooting for us. And, you know, he does love us more than we can possibly comprehend. But don't ever take him to be unassuming. Like that steam pipe that I misunderstood to be a, I don't know what I thought it was. But it revealed itself one day and what it contained. Self-salvation can take other forms as well. You know what? I, I have to be accepted by, by that group of people. And if they don't accept me, I just don't know who I am. So I'll act the way they do. I'll drink the way they do. I'll speak the way they do. That way I'll feel accepted and I'll feel secure because Jesus, you being my king, it, it just doesn't give me the security that I really need, the social security and status I just don't know, Jesus. I'm worried that if I try making my king, if I get all my security from you, you may let me down. Tim Keller says this so well. He wrote a book called Jesus the King. He said, aren't we kind of like Peter? We say we're on the side of justice, peace, fairness, but when a challenge arises, we feel for the sword hilt. We merge the kingdom of this world Sword on top, then money, power, success, recognition into our philosophy. Whether it's Christianity or something else, we're exactly like Peter. But you see, the gospel doesn't need saving. Jesus doesn't need saving. We just need to get the truth out there. One of the quotes from one of the church fathers, Augustine, he said, the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It will defend itself. The gospel is like a lion. Just set it loose. It will defend itself. People know the world is screwed up. Jesus is the only answer. So what does accepting the kingship of Christ and his security look like? What does it look like in my life? I'll suggest uh, three things here. First, it means trusting his deity. Believing he's God. And we're, we're taking him at his word that he's God. And this is what Judas missed. He didn't believe in the God-man Jesus. It was like he only saw that steam pipe. There's no power here. He's not going to take over. We're going to be hosed if we follow this guy. I've got to find my own way of security. He wouldn't believe the miracles. And to trust Jesus, we have to believe he is who he says he was. If you're here this morning and you've not taken that first step in trusting Jesus, today could be the day. Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are, and I believe that I am who you say that I am. I'm a sinner desperately in need of you, and I'm trusting in the work that you did for me on the cross when you died for my sins. If you've not taken that step, you can take it right there in your seat right now. Just call out to Christ privately. You don't have to do it out loud. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. I'm trusting you from here on out, even when it doesn't make sense. I've tried to save myself, and it does not work. He's got a way of life that works. He came to bring an entirely new kingdom to earth that is here both already and not yet. It's here already in that people 
citizens of the kingdom of God are already here if you put your faith in Christ, and it's here not yet because the world's still pretty jacked up. The Bible told us it would be that way. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised when it gets worse and worse and worse. But I've read the end of the book. He's going to make it all right. Because when you trust that He is God, then you can enjoy His deliverance. And that's number two. You can enjoy His deliverance. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said, I told you that I am He. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So what's Jesus doing here? He's addressing those men who have come to arrest him, and Jesus has stepped forward. He's taking charge of his own arrest. He's in control. And he's protecting his followers. He's fulfilled what he said back in chapter 17. Of those uh, whom God has given to me, he has lost not one. You are secure in his hand. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious. And this recalls the image we have of Jesus the shepherd in chapter 10. Not only laying his life down for the sheep, but preserving them, not letting them become victims left to the wolves. He's the good shepherd. And it's this deliverance that God means for us to enjoy now. And it's a deliverance from eternal death. But it's not just that. It's a deliverance from a life void of meaning and purpose. It's deliverance from what the world calls success. And if you can picture two men, if you would. Uh, Man A is a follower of Jesus Christ and man B is not. Both men successful, wealthy in the world's eyes. However, they lose their jobs. Man B will be torn down to his bones if this was his identity. And he'll do anything he has to do to keep his status and power. And he'll be devastated and won't know who he is. Now, this man over here can have a completely different reaction. Because his job and his money and his power and success, they're not who he is or who she is. It's not their identity. So while this is, nobody wants to be in that position, it doesn't strip you of everything you are. That's what Christ delivered you of through the gospel. He delivers us from this world and its ways and its systems when we become part of his kingdom. So when the bad, hard stuff comes, we know it's part of the divine plan. That takes us to number three. You can accept his divine will. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And and addressing Peter in his ignorance, in his ignorance he was trying to thwart the plan of God, but... It's going to get worse for Peter. We'll talk about that next time. But Jesus is saying, look, it's the divine will of God that I drink the cup. And the Hebrew scriptures depict the cup as a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. Look at Isaiah 51, 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. But the bowl of wrath is what Jesus is going to drink. And there in the garden, he is staring into the furnace. He knows what's going to come next. And it's it's horrible. All of his followers are going to abandon him, and the darkness is coming. But he accepted the cup. He drank all of God's wrath so we would never have to. 
And Jesus was facing, you know, Christians through history have faced death. And you could see him do it with a lot of courage and strength. Jesus was facing something different. It was all the wrath of the Father poured out on him. And, and while Christ ridded us of the need to be afraid of death, we are going to face hard circumstances and difficulty. And, and your suffering comes when there's this gap between what we desire and the reality that we're in. And in that gap lies something we call suffering. And you're suffering. I know many of you are hurting. And Jesus told the disciples previously, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we may wrestle with God's will, but we still obey in love. Following the example of Christ. So putting this together, find security in Christ's kingship by trusting his deity, believing his God, enjoying his deliverance, and finally accepting his divine will. I just want to close with this, this story about what happened back in uh, February. New York City actually has one of the largest populations of Ukraine. About 150,000 Ukrainians have uh, immigrated to New York City, and there are, many of them are Christian refugees and uh, Baptists and Pentecostals, probably some Baptocostals in there. And they're in this special asylum uh, fleeing because of religious persecution. And when, when Putin put the, his nuclear forces on high alert, many of them ran out in the streets in protest, but most of them uh, flooded the churches. And they gathered there, they said, to pray and to weep and lament and sing to God. And they called their songs Weapons of War. And as the escalation uh, got worse, one of the worship leaders said this to Christianity Today that our minds fail to understand how is this possible in this day and age. God allowed this to happen. And we don't know why. But we know God is sovereign and He's on His throne. There are people who think if they kill someone, it will accomplish a goal. They went on to say, Our hope is in the Lord, the one who holds things together. No matter how things fall apart, the Lord created this world and He holds things in His hands. And He was playing and leading worship music in tears while he said those things. But he told his church family, he said, even if a nuclear attack happens, the hope we have is we go home and we will be together with Jesus, the one we know will help us. The power in our king far outweighs the power anywhere else. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are our Savior, and you are our King. And though it doesn't always feel like it, Lord Jesus, even as we sing with tears and in fear at times, we trust that you are sovereign, and we find peace and joy knowing that you are sovereign over all the universe. And the universe is not chaotic. You are in control. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who's not yet put their faith in you that today would be the day. Lord, we don't know when you're coming back. It could be today. It could be this week. And Lord, I pray that everyone, everyone here this morning would not, would not take for granted what it took to pay for their salvation. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
If you're in need of prayer today, I'd love to pray with you. You can come down to the front. I'll be here, perhaps with another uh, couple of elders. We're also having a baby dedication. If you want to stick around for the beginning of our next service, Otherwise, have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you for being here, and we'll see you soon.